Today, we'll be talking about socialist reconstruction, a better future for the United States. This is premised on a new book by the same title. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jody Dean. Jody is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. She's the author of several books. She was part of the collective effort, along with myself and others, to produce the just-released book, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States, which you can find at liberationstore.org. I want to encourage people also to get some of Jody Dean's other works, including a recently released book, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writings by Dr. Dean and Sharice Burden-Stelly, who were the editors. Jody is also the author of the important book called Comrade, a political essay. In 2016, she authored and published the book Crowds and Party. Jody Dean, welcome back. So glad to be here. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Jody, you and I worked together along with this other collective of people to write this book. It was, a, in a way, a, a novel undertaking. We were trying to imagine what socialism would be like in the United States. The premise was the revolution has happened. The government is now a socialist government. The commanding heights of the economy are under the control of a socialist government. And there's an effort, an attempt to reconstruct or rebuild, reorganize the economy on a socialist basis, but not just the economy, all of society. And at the back cover of the book, it says, This is a vision of the first decade of socialism in the United States. The diverse multinational working class has achieved political supremacy and is actively eliminating bigotry, racism, and national oppression as it expands economic, social, and political democracy. In other words, that's the framing. We're trying to help people understand what socialism would look like, not in Venezuela, not in Cuba, not in the old Soviet Union or old Russia or the People's Republic of China, but here in the United States. Let's first help the audience understand the importance, at least from our point of view, of why this project was undertaken. The United States has endured over a hundred years of anti-communism, right? It's almost like you get it in the crib, right? As soon as you're born, it's like the United States is a capitalist country and the worst possible thing ever is communism. It's nonstop. So we have to combat as as revolutionaries, as socialists, as people who believe in just kind of basic principles of fairness and democracy and egalitarianism, we have to defend ourselves against anti-communism. And so one of the primary goals of this book is to let people realize that, in fact, 
socialism is possible in the United States. It's actually something that will make life better for the vast majority of people. And we can envision it here, right? We can see, we can build socialism on the basis of the already advanced economy that the United States, on the basis of our highly literate and educated workforce. So socialism is possible here, and it's going to look different from where it would look, how it looked in countries that had to industrialize. We're already industrialized, right? We have a massive basis. And so we can actually build a socialism that's going to make life substantially better. And one other thing is we really need to imagine socialism in the United States here and now because of climate change, right? It can't, the world can't go on with the United States willy nilly drilling and investing in fossil fuels and acting like just changing the light bulbs is going to make a difference. Right? We can build socialism in the United States on the basis of what we have. It's possible to do it here, and it's also necessary. One of the realities of how socialism has been constructed in the places where the working class and peasantry has seized power is that most of those countries were ravaged by great poverty, great scarcity, underdevelopment, the legacy of colonialism. When we think of Russia in 1917 or the People's Republic of China in 1949 or, or even closer to home, Cuba in 1959, the big problems that the masses of people had was extensive scarcity. The problem in the United States, really, the problems in the United States don't really originate so much from scarcity, but from surplus. Let's just talk again or expand a little bit more on the material basis for the building or reconstructing of an economy and a society on a socialist basis when we're in a society where it's not premised on or dominated by scarcity. On the contrary, the problems arise from the inability of capitalism to rationally distribute or handle or contract surplus. Yeah, the U.S. economy is really characterized by overproduction, overproduction and really, really terrible allocation. So let's think about this in something like the labor market. You have the kind of overproduction of highly paid managers who are doing jobs that we actually don't really need and the underproduction of, let's say, physicians doctors, social workers, therapists. I mean, in a lot of places, it's the, the under allocation of positions like, you know, contractors and building maintenance and, you know, securing the kind of basic infrastructure that we have. So what has happened under this capitalist system is the overproduction of things that we don't need and the failure to allocate resources, whether these resources are jobs, whether these are material resources, but the failure to allocate resources in ways that will meet social needs. So what has to happen here is not kind of bumping up or energizing the forces of production. What we have to do here is really redistribute what we make and how we make things and do that with a, on the basis of really thoughtful and participatory planning. And regarding thoughtfulness and planning and looking at life and society and work in a, in a different way, so that we understand socialism or socialist reconstruction isn't simply having a government that has a vast social insurance program, which of course is very important, but it's far beyond that. One of the things that you have emphasized both in this book and in other writings and in some of your talks 
is how the capitalist system and the capitalist ruling class or the employer class looks at labor. Labor or labor power is a commodity. It is something that is bought and sold. Those who own no property, who have no other way to sustain their life, they sell their labor. We sell our labor or our labor power, our ability to labor every day for a wage or a salary. There are very, very big parts of human labor that are not remunerated at all, are not considered a commodity, but they produce essential use values. I'm thinking about raising children, for instance, and there are many other areas of what's necessary for social production. Again, how does that look differently in terms of the new book, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States? So many of your listeners will likely be familiar with Frederick Engel's book on the origin of the family, private property, and the state. And Engel's emphasizes there that the determining factor in history is the production and reproduction of immediate life. But what happens with industrial capitalism is that the reproduction of immediate life becomes utterly devalued. Right. Industrial capitalism it emphasizes the distribution of labor in accordance with the wage, and it valorizes wage labor in factories. And all of the kind of reproductive labor, like half of all of the labor that we have that's necessary for the production of life, goes utterly devalued, just utterly like shoved into the private sphere and ignored. And this is, of course, we see here the description of patriarchy and the devaluation of women's labor. This also has really important race dimensions, particularly for imperialist countries like the U.S., who rely on immigrant labor, you know, the labor of black and brown people to do jobs that in wealthier households that women may not want to do, but that they may you know, hire other people to do. So there's this whole terrible problem of the devaluation of all of reproductive labor or all of the labor that's necessary for the production of immediate life. Once your economy can be planned around what's necessary, how do we meet social needs, and how do we make sure that people all have an opportunity to participate in discussing what the social needs are and planning for those social needs, when people start to recognize like, oh, gee, every one of us, you know, let's say above the age of 18, has to figure out how are we going to eat? We have to you know, get our clothes on in the mornings. We have to take care of our living environments. It's not right to pawn off that labor of taking care of our everyday lives onto people on the basis of sex and race and class. But we have to recognize that all of us are engaged in that kind of work all the time. And that kind of work is as important as building communities, is as important as building bridges, and we can bring all of it together and plan who will do what when and how all of us need to be involved in every aspect of this kind of work. One of the things that is said about socialism in order to demonize socialism, one of the many stereotypical characterizations that are basically undertaken as, as part of or central to bourgeois propaganda to make people hate socialism or fear socialism, certainly not to understand socialism, is to conflate capitalism with democracy and socialism with a totalitarian form of government. And so people are told, look, we live in a democracy. And what is the characteristic feature of this democracy? Every two years, 
we get to vote for members of Congress. Every four years, we get to vote for the President of the United States. Every six years, each member, each of the 100 members of the U.S. Senate is up for election or re-election, or there's a new election, but on a statewide basis. So democracy has a very, very narrow definition here. The democracy that we are taught in school is so sacred is this kind of elections every, you know, periodically, every two or four years, basically, for people who are then going to represent us in the Congress or in a state legislature. Let's talk about what we mean, those of us who have written this book, Socialist Reconstruction, what we mean by democracy, because it's far, far different and it's far more expansive than this narrow political definition of what a real democracy would look like. The version that we've laid out here in Socialist Reconstruction is so much more exciting and so much more democratic because it involves people in the decision-making and execution of the choices that affect all of our lives. I think one of our formulations is like as a collective executive. So rather than thinking of politics as something that some kind of separate group does and we just you know do a thumbs up or thumbs down our version has mass basically the mass mobilization of the entire population in a whole set of different capacities whether or not it's through inventories of energy and housing and skills and needs till we have those and then we have the involvement of meeting social needs by forming different kinds of organizations by being involved in education from cradle to grave by being involved in the rebuilding of society in ways that will be responsive to the changing climate. Because that's going to take a lot of people, not just sort of changing something like light bulbs, but in fact, actively being involved in restructuring our communities, restructuring like roads, restructuring the way that our food is grown and the way that food is distributed. And The only way, I mean, just to go back to the climate part, the only way that we will have an effective and just solution to the climate problems is if the vast majority of people with every single person who is able is involved in planning, in formulating the goals and ideals and recognizing like, oh, we can do this. We have a responsibility to do this and we can collectively make it happen. But I think really when you get right down to it, the kinds of changes that are necessary for responding to the existential climate crisis involve people transforming ourselves and our relationships kind of all the way down. And the way that we do that is with practical engagement. So this is what democracy involves, not just a kind of like, you know, pulling a lever once every couple of years. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which, you know, delivers annual reports about global climate changes, global warming The reports are pretty uniform. They're pretty consistent. They include the opinions of thousands of scientists. They're they're peer-reviewed, meaning that they're really based on science, not just somebody's opinion. They're warning of really a dire catastrophe. And it's not like in a couple hundred years. It's, you know, right now and coming. And we can sort of see the handwriting on the wall. And Then you look at the Wall Street Journal after one of the recent IPNN reports, the headline of a lead editorial was, climate change brings a flood of hyperbole. 
Despite constant warnings of catastrophe, things aren't anywhere near as dire as the media says. So you have the the scientists speaking and then these big capitalist newspapers and the Wall Street Journal is the epitome of a capitalist newspaper telling everybody like, cool it, no big deal. This is hyperbole. It's not nearly as dire. But let's just talk to the people who agree that it is dire. A lot of people, as we've talked about, Jody, you know, it's easier in the face of climate catastrophe. And I think this is especially true for younger people. It's easier for them to envision the actual end of the world or the end of civilization as we know it than to envision a system where capitalism doesn't actually drive the economy in such a way that makes climate catastrophe inevitable. In other words, it's easier to have a sort of a nihilistic view or a hopeless view, a fatalistic view than a a hopeful view. And yet this book, and I think this is what makes one of the reasons the book is so important, says not only can we achieve major changes that mitigate against climate catastrophe, but it says how we can do it. It says specifically how we can do it, meaning it's not just rhetoric. We have a plan. And at the same time, we emphasize, and as you've been saying, emphasize that this has to be at the center of any economic model, because if you don't put mitigation of climate catastrophe at the center, everything else might be absolutely worthless because the crisis is in fact real. Absolutely. Throughout the book, addressing the climate catastrophe is a primary theme. The core plan that we have has three basic tracks in it. Decommodification, which basically means we nationalize the entire energy sector so that energy is recognized as the common resource that it is and not treated as a commodity the way that the capitalist system tries to treat it. And we should always add in there the recognition of how much government subsidies the fossil fuel sector already gets. So it's like even the capitalist system recognizes that the market isn't working, that it relies on government subsidies. So what we will do is just extend that and completely decommodify the energy sector, recognizing that it's a resource. The second major part of the energy plan that we have is decarbonization. And what that means is keep the fossil fuels in the ground. We can't use them anymore. We cannot keep having gas and coal as primary energy sources. So how will that work? We've got an idea for a kind of a 10-year plan that we call cap and convert. And so every year we have a 10% reduction in the amount of fossil fuels that we produce and import. And at the same time, we increase the amount of renewables in our energy mix so that by the time 10 years are gone, we will have increased 100% the numbers of renewables or the amount of renewables in the energy mix and decreased by 100% the amount of fossil fuels. So that's a realizable goal. It's a pragmatic goal. It is a planned goal. And so you're building the industries and the capacities and the monitoring mechanisms up at the same time as 
because you are decreasing the amount of fossil fuels. So, of course, that could never happen under capitalism because the profit-minded corporations, you know, they are the ones who monopolize what is possible and what we are allowed to think about. But once we've recognized that those are nationalized, once all of the energy is understood as belonging to the people, then we don't have to worry about the sort of corrupt capitalist profit mechanism. The third part of our energy plan is decolonization. And what this really means is recognizing the responsibility that Northern industrial imperialism has had for the changing climate, right? It's the fault of Northern industrial imperialism that the world is in the situation that it is. And who's bearing most of the brunt of this? Right now, it's many of the countries in the global South. And the passage you read from the Wall Street Journal, it's just terrible. It's like so like deceitful and corrupt because they're like Pakistan, like is a third of the country is underwater. So there's already massive amounts of droughts, fires, floods, and social upheaval as people are forced to migrate because of increasing temperatures and failed crops. So we highlight and place at the center of our analysis of this, the need to decolonize basically all approaches to energy. So in practice, this is following the lead of the Cochabamba People's Agreement that was presented in 2010. And it obliges us to help other countries adapt to the changing climate and not in the way that the kind of Green New Deal people do. Like what they usually emphasize is selling technology and, and doing that kind of transfer. We think that we have to share the technology. We have to work together and we have to work together under the terms of that colonialized countries and colonialized people set. Not like, oh, what's going to be the climate plan that's going to benefit us? No, it's got to benefit those who have been damaged the most by this. So I think it's going to that this emphasizing the need to decolonize energy production and use is going to really help address the justice issues that necessarily accompany climate change. One of the things that we decided, Jody, as we were working on this book is that we were going to offer very specific proposals for the first decade of what a socialist economy and a socialist society would look like so that people, when we promote socialism, could understand exactly what we mean. And we thought that was vitally necessary in a country where, as you put it, anti-communism and anti-socialism have been drilled into people's heads for the last hundred years. And ever since the end of the World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, anti-communism reached such a fever pitch that people who joined socialist and communist groups were hounded, they lost their jobs, People went to prison, some were executed, many thousands went into exile. So people don't have like an objective understanding of what socialism might mean or could be because it's just been so demonized. And at the same time, we said, while we're making specific proposals, we don't treat this topic the way, you know, faith-based people might treat Holy Scripture, like the New Testament, like this is the word of God. This is the gospel. In fact, what we've said over and over again is we are trying to start a dialogue with the people of this country about what socialism would look like, which means that our ideas are like an introduction to the dialogue. It doesn't mean we believe that this is the last word. We don't mean it doesn't mean that there might not be better proposals. In fact, because it's a dialogue, we want to hear from people. We want to hear what are your ideas? We want people to read this book and, and we want to have you give us thoughtful feedback and response. And in fact, 
I'm hoping, Jody, that we are able to have another show with you in a few weeks after people have ordered the book, after they've read the book, and after they've formulated their own questions so that we could have a real give and take with the audience. And I'm really, really looking forward to trying to do that. But let's do it in a few weeks where people can actually read the book and give some thought to it. In the meantime, I want to help you know, sort of promote the book because we think it's so important. There are many important chapters. It covers a whole wide range of economic and social issues. One of the chapters is an energy future for the people and the planet. Another is ending the stranglehold of debt and finance capital, reconstructing agriculture, infrastructure renewal, housing and transportation, medicine for the people. What would what would a medical system under a socialist society, what would that look like? There's a chapter on crime, policing, and public safety. Another one on U.S. foreign policy. This is a very comprehensive set of topics. Because we have a limited amount of time, I wanted to go to one sort of, and just to help the audience get a sense of what we're trying to do. It's a focus of yours, and I've heard you speak about it, especially Friday night. We had a book launch at the People's Forum. It's about debt. And you made a really convincing argument that how a socialist government deals with the issue of debt could be, in fact, the way of bringing forward socialism. In this chapter, Ending the Stranglehold of Debt and Finance Capital, Chapter 4, the very first sentence, in a New York Times editorial published on July 2nd, 2021, filmmaker Astra Taylor observes, Whereas the American dream used to be owning a home with a white picket fence, now it's getting out of debt. I love the way that chapter opens, and I think it's emblematic of what's really going on in the country. That is the problem. It is a stranglehold, but there is a solution, a socialist solution. So the way that we present the socialist solution in the book has two steps, abolition and reconstruction. So I'll say a little bit about both of these. With respect to abolition, we have to get rid of the stranglehold of debt on our lives and futures, whether or not it's the lives of individuals who are really constrained by household debt and student loan debt, whether or not it's the kind of horrible stranglehold that communities feel because they don't have enough money in order to fix their water systems and sewage systems and roads, and in fact, undertake these kinds of municipal bonds that actually just benefit the the holders and traders of these bonds. And then we also have the kind of debt that people have because there's an inadequate healthcare system in the U.S. that doesn't provide people with with the full healthcare, which we are all entitled to. We don't have that. And so people go into horrible amounts of medical debt. And then we know that countries around the world are in debt to capitalist banks and to the large scale capitalist sort of cabals like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which reduces all sorts of countries to debt. We have to abolish all of these. Liberation requires nothing less than eliminating this stranglehold of debt. Now, what will happen when we do this? What will happen is that the stocks market, the bonds market, these things vanish in an instant. The big banks vanish in an instant. This might seem a little bit horrifying and shocking, and it is to the capitalists, it is to the banks, as we know from 2008. 
when they crash the economy. And what happens? What does the government do? Does it worry about everyday people and people's lives? And does it uphold every person's ownership of their house? No, it bailed out the mortgage companies and the big banks who had squandered people's resources and squandered people's earnings and squandered people's savings. So they saved the banks. What we recognize that does happen is that capitalism is constantly destroying trillions of dollars and then using the efforts and work and savings of working class people to restore the trillions that the bankers lost and restore them back to the capitalist class. What we will do is say no. Once these institutions that issue debt and rely on debt and create debt are banished, we can have a whole new system that reconstructed on the basis of the substantial material resources that we have on the actual land, on the actual knowledge that workers have, on the actual skills of working people, on the machinery that is there, but that capitalist firms fail to value properly because they're only interested in this, this paper money and this fictitious money of their loans and finances and you know stocks and all of that kind of stuff. So we abolish the debt. And then we rebuild and reconstruct on the basis of the common material resources that we have. We can establish quite easily a national people's development bank. The people's development bank can be an instrument through which different communities inventory their skills and their needs, share that information with regional groups and then larger up to the the sort of center group. And then the different skills and needs of all the different communities can be coordinated and needs met rather than worrying about, oh, the private property of this firm over here or this bank over there. So in fact, abolishing debt can be the way we socialize the economy. It can be the primary instrument for dissolving the power and influence and wealth of the 1% and recognizing the real strength and value of the 99%. And just to help people frame this discussion, because people have a tendency to think that this, the system we live in, the economic system, is as it always has been and always will be. There's kind of this sense of, once a, a system is normalized, it, it's just the way things are. But, you know, when the Civil War ended and the system of slavery ended, all of those human beings, millions of people who were the property of slave owners, who were exploited by the slave owners, whose enslavement made the slave owners rich, they became free people. There was a period of reconstruction. And then the, the old slave owners in the complicity or with the complicity of Northern capitalists destroyed the hopes and dreams of the formerly enslaved and now free parts of the population in the South. And people were resubjected to a, a new kind of slavery, all kinds of real slavery. It was either extreme wage slavery, but even more landed slavery. When you look at this whole period of American history, we wouldn't accept the idea that human beings should be the property of other human beings. We don't accept that. That's not acceptable. It never was, but it was legal. And Jody, when people think about debt, they have to think about it in the same way, that it's got a stranglehold over a big, big part of the population and over society as a whole, and there's nothing God-given about it. It can be done away with. It's really, really up to the people. 
Absolutely. It's a totally political question and one that we can fight for and that we have to fight for. I mean, bankruptcy laws establish whose debts can be dissolved. And so somebody like freaking Donald Trump is able to go into file for bankruptcy and then still be a billionaire. But everyday students who actually might, you know, have gone into student debt in order to be teachers or to be social workers or, you know, to be farmers and learn new, you know, and better agricultural methods, everyday people, we don't have our student loans debts just completely dissolved. There's a cap on it if the new law even is able to get established rather than getting overturned. But we need to recognize that debts are an instrument through which a particular class keeps its power over the rest of us. The same thing, there is no reason in one of the richest countries in the world that anybody should have debt because of healthcare issues. It's just, it is unconscionable that people are victims of medical death. If we had medical debt, if we had an adequate, real healthcare system, everyone would have their healthcare needs met absolutely for free. So I think the other way we can recognize this, if we think about food, right? Like food is a basic thing we need for life. It makes no sense that food is a commodity that some people make money off of when other people need it for surviving. And the same thing is hold with debt. It's a choice about what we pay for. And I think we all recognize that what we need to pay for is meeting basic needs so that people can survive and flourish. All right, Jody, we will come back to this topic. We want people to go and buy the book. You can do so by going to liberationstore.org, liberationstore.org. The name of the book is Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. Read the book, and then in a few weeks, we're going to have a new show with Jody Dean, with Dr. Dean, where we want to hear from you. Did you like the book? Do you have criticisms of the book? Do you have better ideas that you want to offer? We want to hear from everyone who has read the book. So please go again to liberationstore.org. Part of the great effort of this book, and I hope great achievement of this book, is getting all of us to stop making our world be one that where our whole imagination is determined by what the capitalists say is possible or what social media says we can or cannot think or what the way that the Democrats or Republicans set up the policies around us. Like We need to be engaged in a mass collective exercise of imagining a good future, imagining a desirable future, thinking about what's the world we want to live in. And so one of the, to my mind, one of the the real benefits of this project that we have in the book, Socialist Reconstruction, is just opening up this collective process of thinking seriously about what kind of world do we want? Because I think when we can say what kind of world that we want, we may be better able to fight for it. Jody, those are important words. It's really up to us. We have to be able to imagine the future in order to be able to think about it, to talk about it, to persuade others about it. But again, I couldn't agree with you more. We have to not allow the capitalist class to define the narrative about what kind of world we should be living in or can be living in. Jody Dean is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. She's the author of several books. Be sure to go to the internet, type in Jody Dean's books, and you'll find a whole selection of them. We urge you to read, to purchase, and to read all of them. Jody Dean, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brian. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.